0: So I think you can appreciate this is a, a tricky passage, uh, but we have to work with the, the scriptures that are uh, in front of us, so let's just pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we recognize that uh, there's a lot that we read in the Bible that is difficult to grapple with, and we pray that you'll help us to grapple with these themes uh, that we've read uh, this morning. We pray, Father, that uh, your spirit will be among us and that you will uh, help us to always seek your face. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've been in Australia for three years now, and I still haven't got to grips with who's who in the sporting world. Uh, But there is one Australian sportsman whose name I do know. A rugby player by the name of Israel Falau. His name hit the headlines uh, a few months ago when he posted this on Instagram. It says, warning, drunks, homosexuals, adulterers, liars, fornicators, thieves, atheists, idolaters, hell awaits you, repent, only Jesus saves. That's a direct quote of what he posted. Now let me say right off the bat, I don't think that was a wise or helpful thing to have posted. Uh, but there's two things that I want us to notice about this post. Uh, firstly, it lists eight categories of people who engage in various kinds of behaviour. Uh, but today we're talking about sexual immor- immorality, or morality rather. Uh, so let's just note that there are three kinds of sexual behaviour on that list. There's homosexuality, adultery, and fornication. And the media focused exclusively on homosexuality. I didn't see a single report that mentioned adultery Or fornication. And when it comes to the Christian view of sex and marriage, the conversation always seems to narrow to this uh, one specific issue. And I think Christians are often just as much to blame for this as the secular world. Second thing to notice about Falau's post is this, it was not the most effective way to bring people around to his point of view if that's what he was trying to do. Uh, when it comes to the way that Christians engage with the world on this subject of sexual morality, I think we can do much better. Uh, I think we can be a more effective Christian witness in this area, and I hope today we'll begin to see how. We read 1 Corinthians 5, uh, 1-13, to and there's a lot of challenging stuff in there, but um, I'll be touching on themes from throughout chapters 5 and 6, And there's even more challenging stuff in those chapters. And I'd encourage you to read those chapters in full uh, when you get the chance. And there are two things that I'm going to be looking at today. Uh, Sexual purity in the church, what does that even mean? And the way we interact with those outside the church, particularly on this issue, how do we do that? But first, let's try to understand what was going on in the city of Corinth, where this church that Paul was writing to was based. So Corinth is in uh, Greece. Today it lies in ruins. But uh, in the first century, it was an important center of trade and commerce. It's flanked by two large seaports, a strategically important city. Uh, But Corinth was depraved and decadent and immoral in the extreme. Uh, up on the hill was a temple to Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, uh, when, where 1,000 priestesses served in the temple as sacred prostitutes. And um, it was a cult that was dedicated to the glorification of sex. Uh, at night, those uh, priestesses, those temple prostitutes, would go down into Corinth and apply uh, their trade. You can imagine the impact that that would have on this city. Uh, There was also also a temple to Apollo, the Greek and Roman god of music, song, and poetry. And Apollo was considered to be the ideal of male beauty. And worshippers would express their devotion by engaging in sexual acts with, quote, God's beautiful boys who are often minors and children. So Corinth was a city of idolatry, greed, and unrestrained sexual appetite. Like the Corinthians, we too live in a culture where sex is worshipped. We live in one of the most over-sexualized societies ever. Uh, People expose themselves themselves, or are exposed uh, to graphic pornography, often at a very young age. Sex is used to sell things. Prostitution is legal. The trafficking of women and children for sex is the world's fastest growing crime. Attitudes to sex are becoming increasingly liberal. Already it's a case of pretty much anything goes. That is the society, that is the world that we are living in. Throughout history, Christians have lived and been surrounded by uh, cultures that were morally confused and wayward. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is not heard when Christians condemn the culture with vitriolic scorn and contempt nor is the gospel heard when Christians capitulate to the culture with an attitude of easygoing acceptance and approval. The gospel is heard and seen when the church remains distinct from the culture, and part of that distinctiveness relates to sexual purity. But to take sexual purity seriously, we need to understand God's intention for this area of our lives. I think we can all appreciate that sex And sexual desire is an incredibly powerful thing. Uh, It's a gift from God for our enjoyment and for procreation, but it's powerful. And so there need to be boundaries. And God gives us those boundaries not to spoil our fun, but because he loves us and he wants to protect us. The Bible teaches that God has designed the male and female body to be united in a unique one flesh union. And the context uh, of, for sexual intercourse is a lifelong, committed, loving, monogamous relationship between a man and a woman in marriage. This is the only kind of sexual relationship that the Bible affirms. And Jesus endorsed this view by quoting from Genesis. He said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So this rules out all premarital and extramarital sex. Uh, All sex outside of marriage is wrong, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual. Now, this is really controversial. There'll be a lot of people who would struggle to accept this teaching. Many would say that it's old-fashioned, prudish, unrealistic, absurd. So even on this one issue, sex before marriage, the Christian view is, by the standards of our culture, eccentric to say the least. You tell the average person that it's wrong to have sex outside of marriage and they will laugh at you. Uh, But that's not the aspect of uh, Christian teaching that tends to come under the spotlight. If you were to ask the average person in the street what Christians believe about sex and marriage, they're likely to say something about the perceived attitude of Christians towards homosexuality. And the Israel Fallout situation and the media handling of it, I think, has intensified that sentiment. But if we look at the full scope of sexual relations that fall outside the Christian norm, we see that the vast majority of those are not homosexual in nature. So when we talk about sex and marriage, we must not narrow the field to this one very specific thing. The most uh, significant epidemic... Uh, of sexual sin, both inside and outside the church, is sex without commitment. Sex outside of marriage. And many would say that this is a ridiculous and impossible ideal. It only serves to make people feel bad about themselves. And I have to admit that when I was a teenager, I believed the gospel, I believed the the Christian message, but this issue, uh, more than any other, I think, held me back from following Jesus. And I, I felt really angry about it. I I asked, why has God made me this way? Why do I have this seemingly irrepressible sexual desire? And when you're a teenager, the gap between the present and the point in the future where you could see yourself getting married, well, that might as well be eternity. It seems like an impossible situation. And to my detriment, to my absolute detriment, I turned away from God at that stage in my life remaining sexually pure before marriage is hard and those of us who are married uh, shouldn't forget just how hard it is it's hard for anybody but teenage pregnancy is hard raising a child on your own is hard breaking up with someone with whom you've had sexual intercourse is hard because sex is not just a physical act it's also a spiritual act the joining together of two people you can't just rip that apart without a great deal of pain waking up next to a stranger and feeling disgusted with yourself is hard contracting a sexually transmitted disease is hard being complicit in an abortion is hard and again christians have a particular stance on this we don't kill the unborn being addicted to pornography is hard being in a relationship with someone who has had multiple sexual partners before you is hard it's hard not to be jealous Uh, realizing that you cannot give the person you love the person with whom you intend to spend the rest of your life realizing that you can't give them that unique gift of sexual intimacy that is hard remaining sexually pure is hard but I think we can see why God would want this for us and for the church. God's given us a powerful gift, but he's also given us boundaries to protect us. Now, I would guess that most of us, most of us have experienced the difficulty and the pain of one or more of those experiences. And in some cases, it will be because of something that's been inflicted on us. We might have experienced one of those situations, not because we've sinned, but because someone has sinned against us. And it would be really important to say at this point that being a victim of sexual abuse is not a sin, but it is incredibly damaging. And to anyone who has suffered in that way, I would encourage you, uh, if you can find the courage to bring it out into the light with someone you trust, someone you can confide in, someone who will... Pray with you and for you. Someone who will support you. That can be so incredibly liberating. But often those experiences that I mention are the result of our choices. And if you're sat there thinking, I've made a real mess of this. I've got good news. God loves you. Most of us have made a mess of this. The good news is that we are not cut off from God. God is longing to embrace us like a loving father who hugs his children, and God will embrace us the instant we turn back to him. God can bring healing and renewal to our lives, but that can be a long and difficult process. And God gives us these boundaries uh, so that hopefully we won't need to go through that process. But as I've said Most of us seem to learn this stuff the hard way. You know, we are all disordered. Every aspect of our being is disordered. We are sinful, and sin is like a hereditary disease that affects every single one of us. There is no part of who we are that is not in some way affected by sin. We cannot, therefore, rely on our feelings, passions, and desires to determine what is right and wrong because our feelings passions and desires are often sinful nor can we allow the prevailing culture to to determine what is right and wrong because that will change depending on when and where we happen to live as christians we are called to be distinctive from the surrounding culture and that includes the way that we conduct ourselves as sexual beings And one of the big problems for the church in Corinth was that they were not being distinctive in this area. They were not an effective Christian witness. And the first thing Paul talks about is this case of incest. A man sleeping with his father's wife, his stepmother. And it seems to be a source of pride for the church. You see, they'd misunderstood God's grace. They thought, well, if God forgives us, then we can do whatever we like. It's like they're saying, God is so gracious and forgiving that this is going on in our church and we don't even have to worry about it. And Paul says, no, no, you should have gone into mourning and expelled this person from the church. Now, someone might say, well, that's harsh. Where does forgiveness come into this? Why are we talking about someone being expelled? Well, firstly, this wasn't a temporary lapse on the man's part. and Nothing is said about the woman, so it could be that she wasn't uh, a member of the church. In the words of one commentator, this was a case of doing evil with delight and persistency. Doing evil with delight and persistency. The man is unrepentant, and so he needs to be disciplined. And hopefully, by being put out of the church, that will be enough of a wake-up call for him to repent and turn away from that behavior. It's an extreme measure, but it's for the man's own good, but it's also for the good of the church because this kind of persistent and flagrant sin undermines and affects the life of the whole community. Paul says, a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough. When one person's sin is affecting the life and the behavior of the whole church, clearly something has to be done. But we wouldn't apply that kind of discipline to any and every case of sexual impurity. There will, of course, be far more occasions where these things are dealt with pastorally. Uh, Most of the time, the solution will be a pastoral one. It doesn't have to be dealt with in such a public way, meeting together, praying, talking, working through this stuff. And pastoral solutions are not always quick solutions, but they do enable people to grow and become all that God is calling them to be. You see, Paul doesn't expect perfection. He knows we're sinful. God doesn't expect perfection. In verse 8, Paul writes, Therefore let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Being filled with malice and wickedness, rebelling against God and not caring. That is one thing. Accepting the truth and sincerely trying to live it out, albeit in a flawed and faltering way, that is another thing altogether. So as a church, we do need to take sexual purity seriously. And God's best for us, God's standard can sometimes seem impossibly high, but perhaps not in the case of incest, but with some of the other things that I've mentioned But the boundaries that God sets are not arbitrary. They are there to protect us. So how can the church be an effective witness to the world in this whole area of sex and marriage? Well, firstly, by being distinctive. That was the problem with the Corinthian church. They weren't distinctive. Uh, They were living according to their old pattern of life, the the old yeast, instead of conforming to their new life uh, in Christ, the, the new unleavened batch And there's a big difference between leavened bread and unleavened bread. One is kind of fluffy and full and round, and the other one is flat. You can see the difference instantly. You cannot mistake the two. The church should be noticeably different from our culture. We should prize chastity, champion marriage, be faithful to our spouses, and see the deep value of friendships and relationships that are not sexual in nature. In short, we should get our house in order. We'll be far more effective if we demonstrate what we're for rather than wagging our finger at lifestyles that we're unable to condone. Now, our views as Christians about a lot of things are not going to be popular. I hold a traditional view of marriage and sex. I believe it's a biblical view, which means there are lifestyles that I cannot endorse. Uh, For that reason, many will dismiss me as being old-fashioned and irrelevant, and that's okay. Uh, Some may even accuse me of being a hateful bigot, and we hear that word a lot, don't we, the haters. And I do struggle with that, because the last thing I would want anyone to think is that I hate them, because nothing could be further from the truth. And part of the problem is that the word tolerance has been twisted out of all recognition. Tolerance used to mean you and I might not share the same view but we're still going to get along. And as a Christian, I'd want to say, you and I might see things differently, but I'm still going to love you. Tolerance is now taken to mean, you will endorse, condone, and affirm my lifestyle. And if you don't, you hate me. And that simply isn't true. You can love someone without affirming their lifestyle. But in this climate, it would be very very easy, tempting to disengage altogether. Now, Paul wrote to the Corinthians on a previous occasion, and he told them not to associate with sexually immoral people. And the Corinthians took that to mean that they should cut themselves off from the outside world. And when we think back to the kind of things that were going on in Corinth, we can understand why the church might have felt that it needed to cut itself off from the world completely. But Paul clarifies he wasn't talking about people outside the church. He meant don't associate with sexually immoral people who claim to be Christians. But remember, the case in point is incest. A man who is unrepentantly sleeping with his father's wife. And it's that kind of horribly damaging behavior that could lead uh, to such an extreme measure as someone being put out of the church. I, I would argue... Uh, that putting someone out of the fellowship is an absolute last resort when that person's behavior is having a toxic effect on the entire community. For example, if a man was making sexual advances on young girls in the church, you would expect me to put that man out of the church. It goes without saying, there are some kinds of behavior that we just can't tolerate as a community. Uh, And when we look at Paul's injunction through that lens, I think it starts to make a bit more sense. But those decisions are not taken lightly. They're not the norm. And as I said, in most cases, most things can be dealt with pastorally, one-on-one, without it being a, a, a public thing at all. But isn't it ironic? Here are the Corinthians trying to cut themselves off from the immoral outsiders, and one of their own is guilty of incest, and no one's batting an eyelid. Could it be that today's church is sometimes guilty of that same kind of hypocrisy? Reading from verse 12, Paul says, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you, to judge the, are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. In other words, don't worry so much about what the world is doing. Focus on what's going on in the church. What kind of example are we setting as a church? We have to be in the world. We can't possibly share the gospel if we refuse to have anything to do with anyone outside the church. Jesus spent so much time with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners that his enemies accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard. Uh, We've got to be in the world. But equally, we need to be distinct from the world if we're in the world but we're not distinct or if we're distinct but we're cut off from the world either way we can't bear witness to Jesus's kingdom Israel Folau's post and I'm not vilifying Israel Folau but what he's done is he's taken Paul's injunction to the church he's taken something that Paul wrote to get the church to pull its socks up and he's projected that out into the world when really the church should receive that message and act upon it in order to be a more credible witness to the world so rather than pointing a judgmental finger from afar because that's not going to win anyone to christ and that's what we want to do isn't it win people for christ better we concentrate on exemplifying the kind of life that we are called to as christians and we can do that we must do that without cutting ourselves off from the world. I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't be clear about what we believe. We absolutely should be clear. I hope I have been today, but actually we'll be a lot clearer if across the board, I'm talking the worldwide church, if our praxis, uh, the way we live and what we do is consistent with what we profess to believe. So sexual purity is not just to do with the things that shock us, like this case of incest that we've read about today. Nor is it about one or two particular issues that the media and some Christians like to seize upon. We are called to live radically differently to almost everyone else in our society. We are called to live radically differently to almost everyone else in our society. That was true for the Corinthians and it's true for us. We can't be perfect. But we can hold on to the truth with all sincerity and aim to live it out with ever-increasing faithfulness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we recognise that uh, as we read our way through 1 Corinthians, through Scripture in general, it throws up difficult issues, issues that are countercultural, issues that are difficult to talk about. Uh, But we know, Father, that as a church, we... We can't avoid these issues. We must tackle them head on. Uh, But we pray that you'll give us wisdom and discernment. And you'll give us a, 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 a deep desire to live pure lives for you, every area of our lives. We pray, Father, that we'll be more interested in dealing with the stuff that we're dealing with than pointing the finger at other people. Help us to remove the plank before we try and point out the speck. Help us as a church, as a worldwide church, to be more consistent in the upholding of your values and help us to be discerning as to what those values are. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.